Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My next guest is like one of those very special friends who is smart and thoughtful and witty and who, importantly, can help you work through any kind of problem, any morass of muck, any kind of drama, and come out better on the other end. She is nationally syndicated columnist Amy Dickinson, and her advice column, Ask Amy, can be read in newspapers all over the country, where she gives advice to all kinds of people about just about everything. Today, we talk about her column, her life, and just and a plethora of other stuff. You're gonna enjoy this. Here I am with Amy Dickinson. Amy Dickinson, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being here. I'm, I'm tickled. I'm tickled pink, Tanya, to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm tickled too. I've really been looking forward to this. You have been giving people advice for what, 20 years? More than 20? 20 years. It's been a long time. Does anything surprise you? I live in a state of constant amazement. (laughs) Let me just say, (laughs) I, yeah, I, I mean, maybe that's why I've been doing it for 20 years, because I continue to be very interested in the human condition. I swear to God, when I first got this job, so Ann Landers died. And then, you know, the Chicago Tribune, which syndicated her column, did this search to find somebody to write a column to replace her column. I got picked. And I remember thinking, of course, their faith in me was such that I was given like a little cubicle, <laughs> a waste basket, and no help, no nothing. I think they, they saw it as like six to eight weeks, I think they thought it was. And I thought, I'll do this for a couple of years. But I have to say, I continue to be really very, very interested in the human condition, in how people live, in the choices people make, and the problems that people have. And of course, in 20 years, the culture has moved along and people's problems, their questions continue along basic categories, but the content is, for me, endlessly fascinating. It was interesting. I went to your website, askamy.com, amydickinson.com. Yeah. There was a question posed by a grandmother who was very concerned about her grandson going to the prom in a purple dress, uh, like really, and said that you know she lives in fear, like in dread of having an LGBTQ kid. And the first, as I was reading it, I was like, I bet 15 years ago, you know, you were getting this same question and it was about like an interracial couple or, you know, like, right. And your response was like, uh, and I think the grandmother said something like, I wonder if it's a phase, you know, is he going to grow out of this? And your response was, you need to think about whether or not you're in a phase (laughs) that you need to, I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) but it was very on point. So do you find that really some of these problems that people write you about, they're kind of updated versions of problems people had, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Absolutely. And and actually, I think that's why people have read advice columns, honestly, since the 1700s. I mean, this originated, well, I mean, it goes back to 
sitting around the fire with the elder, you know, dispensing advice. I mean, this is a pretty timeless genre. And I think that there is a timelessness to uh, a worried grandmother, a pissed off daughter-in-law, a bridezilla. You know, there is a <laughs> timelessness to that. And the de- it's the details that change. Yeah. The problems people have, I mean, I know that um, I certainly find this on our show. Sometimes people's problems tell you a lot about who they are, sometimes even more about who they are than, you know, what the problem objectively is. Uh, There was another example. (laughs) You're really, you're also such a fun writer to read. Somebody had written into you after having abandoned his family and I guess, and had it, he had a new family, you know, new, um, new wife, new kids. Tanya, and he was doing great, okay? <laughs> he was doing he great. He was doing great. He you had, remember this guy? Yeah, oh yeah. He had <laughs> left, he had <laughs> ditched that other family, but he's doing great. He's like, I'm great now. Yeah. I am really good. I left the other family, but I'm really good. I've started a new life and I'm so great. Meanwhile, my son <laughs> uh, wants to start a relationship with me, and I don't really want to. What should I do, Amy? And you were like, you're actually not so great. You're still a jerk. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. Those are my favorite questions in a way, because I, I really, it, and look, I come, I came to this job as a reader, honestly. I you know, I love to read the questions. I love to dive into the questions. And this is my favorite kind of question because this man, I mean, obviously did not expect me to hold up a mirror, right? He's like, I left my nine-year-old son, no contact, but I'm good now. Yeah. And now this son is an adult and would like to have a relationship with me, but I don't want to. And his question was like, how can I push, how can I keep him away? And I was like, I don't think you're so great. You know, <laughs> <And I was laughs> like, like, uh, clearly know. have not changed. Yeah. Um, but your advice was, uh, was very good. You said you've at least got to be man enough to tell him the truth, which is that you don't want to have a relationship with him. Do you find it hard sometimes? Do people sometimes push your buttons so much that you're just like, you are a bad, bad person. You're just okay, bad. You. Are you able to like get distance? I have, I am able to get distance, I will say, but (laughs) I have had a couple of Q&As go viral. And I mean, global, global. Both of them were, were questions that pushed my buttons. One of them was from a sister who was like, look, I have this loser sister. I like to go on these girls trips and my loser sister tags along she's such a loser and she you know she can't afford to the spa days and she can't afford to like keep up with us I don't want her to come on this trip so uh, tell me you know Amy obviously she's asking me this sort of you know (laughs) rhetorically (laughs) so tell me Amy am I am I a horrible person I was like yes you are horrible (laughs) (laughs) And I think, honestly, I think that I'm sort of known for having like a subtle, literate approach to questions. Thoughtful. I was like, no, dude, you're awful. (laughs) And people were 
were like, oh, oh, Amy called her out. You know, (laughs) that was amazing. Okay, so the other one was from a dad. Very short question. I have a 19-year-old son who insists that he's gay. And I really don't want him to be gay. So what can I do to, like, convince him not to be gay? So I answered and I said, well, why don't you just show him how easy it is and you stop being straight? Like, just show him. Like, stop being straight and then you'll show him how easy it is yeah, to go change. Go some guys. Yeah. And you yeah. will probably show him how to, you can yeah. model that behavior it's of pulling easy. yourself it's out of it. It's easy to switch. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. People are like, oh! Yeah. <laughs> Ask if you ask Amy, hey, you better be prepared for the answer because Amy's going to give you an answer. You mess um, with the bulls, you get the horns, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, you said something a few minutes ago about reading that you still like to read and engage with these folks. You grew up in a household where books were big. I remember I read this on your site that uh, you said that sometimes. You may have gone in your home without some stuff, but there was always an abundance of books. Tell me about that, because I got to tell you, I feel like that there were some seeds must have been planted uh, in little and young Amy. Yeah. So, Tanya, I actually am sitting in that house. I uh, grew up on a dairy farm in a village of 505 people in upstate New York. It was a tough situation. I had like a a bad dad. He abandoned us. He he actually left um, all the cows like in the barn. I mean, it was a pretty dramatic, cinematic abandonment. Honestly, we later auctioned uh, all of our. Uh, we auctioned everything like from the in the driveway. This is how it's done. You know, when you lose everything and then you see your neighbors coming and buying like your livestock i mean it was how old were you how old were you when this was happening i was 12 the youngest in in my family so bad dad takes off but uh, lucky for me i had a great mother my mother was a reader she did not go to college she always had a book we went to the library And yeah, she was amazing. And so I'm the youngest in this family. So my mother was a farm wife, right? Everything falls apart. My mother went to work as a typist um, at Cornell University, which is nearby. It's about 15 miles away. And when I got to be a senior in high school, my mother applied to be a full-time day student at Cornell. And she got in. She was 50. She got in and she and I started college at the same time. She graduated in four years as a day student. And then she went on at Cornell, got her master's degree, uh, an MFA at Cornell. And then, Tanya, she became a professor at Cornell. That's amazing. This is amazing. <laughs> it was so oh my gosh. amazing. So, Mom, yeah, wow, that's incredible, incredible. And honestly, I think she's still the only. I mean, she did not go as a continuing education student. She went as a full time freshman, and I think she's still really the only person to have done it 
quite like that. She was amazing. And to watch, this is, you know, and this informs my column. When I try to communicate with parents about how your children are watching you, okay? They're watching you. The good choices, the bad choices, they are watching. I, fortunately for me, got to watch my mother do that. My father (laughs) ended up briefly living in his van. His life continued in his chaotic way. But yeah, I got to see that. You wrote about, I guess it was sort of a posthumous reconciliation with your father uh, when you went back to his hometown and were really embraced by strangers. Uh, Tell us about that. It was a very powerful piece. I have three siblings and my father, I mean, we didn't know where he lived. We didn't know anything about him. He was gone sort of in and out for decades. When he was, I think around 78, he was in a, a catastrophic car accident. And I got a call, you know, you Google my dad's name and my name pops up, right? I got a call from the state police and they're like, uh, who's going to take this guy? I contacted my siblings. They were like, nope, not doing it. I then said, I'll do it. I stepped up in a minimal way, mind you, but I did step up. I did I did make sure that my father had secure, healthy housing for the last five years of his life, good care. And at the very end, when he was in a hospital uh, in Buffalo, New York, I went to be with him. And it was an incredibly profound experience for me. It was. I learned so much about myself in dealing with him. I learned how to set and maintain uh, limits that were really important for me. But I also learned what what I was capable of. My father would never apologize. I mean, I would get nothing. He never did? No. Never apologized? No. I I mean, and I knew I would never get anything from him. He was a bad old dude. What I realized was that in a way, I was doing it for my mother. She was great. I felt like I was, you know, demonstrating that I was my mother's daughter. It's what she would have wanted you to do, is to look after him like that. She would have been very happy with that. I don't know, it taught me about reconciliation, the power of that, of forgiveness, of honestly letting it go without any expectations and understanding that I would never, I would never get a resolution. Amy, what does forgiveness mean to you? Because as I listen to you tell that story, you seem visibly sad. I mean, I I still, you're still sad. What does it mean to forgive when you're still experiencing pain over the thing that you're trying to forgive? How do you do that? Um, That's a great question. I, I will say that 
in my Methodist upbringing, um, forgiveness is a really important aspect of my faith practice. I also have done a lot of reading into uh, Buddhist thought, and forgiveness really is liberation, I will say. Despite the fact that I'm very emotional, I'm actually feeling emotional, but not sad. More like emotional, yeah. And so I really do believe that forgiveness is a path to absolute liberation. It's tough, you know, when somebody's really done something wrong and they're not repentant. Right. You know, and there's no, like, uh, sorry, um, which is actually, it, it's hard to forgive people, but this is a good segue into what I wanted to talk to you next about because, you know, we communicated um, a bit before the show and you've got these great eight rules. <laughs> I mean, they are like, they're great. They're wonderful. I'm going to call them Amy's commandments, but <laughs> one of them had to do with forgiveness. And you said that your husband, who I was uh, lucky enough to meet, uh, you guys are a dashing couple. You're just dashing. Thank you. You said he's very good at apologies. And, and one of your commandments is practice apologizing Practice patience and forgiveness. That's where yeah. I want to start. Practice patience and forgiveness. What is a good apology? You said your husband is a good apologizer. He is an infuriatingly good, world-class apologizer. And I grew up in a like super waspy uh, household where you didn't really apologize. You papered things over, made a joke, and moved on. You were expected to move on, move on, move on. But then I married Bruno, who grew up in this massive family of 13. He has 12 siblings. And they are a chaotic bunch. And they are always scrapping and mixing it up. And, you know, Bruno was somebody who, when he was a kid, his parents would say, you come here, you come here, you say you're sorry, and you say what? I forgive you. You know, there was training involved. So what Bruno does is he makes eye contact. He states what he's sorry about. He uses I statements. And then he'll say, um, I hope you'll forgive me. Can you forgive me? And sometimes I'll go like, Need a sec. <laughs> First, I want to punch you in the face. <laughs> but it's such great modeling, honestly, because if you've ever been apologized to in a very sincere way, you see, I mean, I've learned how important it is, how easy it is, and I'm very aware of it. Just this morning, Tanya, because I also talk about boundaries a lot. Just this morning, seven in the morning, we live in a rural area and I see a dude like from the village, like he's pulled his car into our land and he's helping himself to some stuff, mulch. He's just like it, uh, produce, I mean, fruit trees are just- Mulch, uh, he's mulch, like mulch. shoveling mulch. Oh, he's just digging up your- So I like, <laughs> I go like walking over, um, and anyway, and I reminded him that, you know, he really shouldn't do that, whatever. He left. 
but it occurred to me, boy, he never even said, oh, I'm really sorry. So I'm left with this like, what's wrong with that guy? Like he's a neighbor. Why should I have to ask him not to trespass? You know, like I've been carrying that. If he had made eye contact with me and said, oh, you know what? I'm really sorry. I would have, it'd be gone by now. As it is, I am planning a vendetta. (laughs) (laughs) This feels like it's going to turn into a TV movie. Oh, yeah. Vendetta time. (laughs) Your little village, there are 500 people. And one of those five, there are 505 people, did you say? Yeah. 505 people. So now only 504 of them are your friends. And that guy, Amy, is coming for you. I'm coming for you, dude. You are coming for him. um, And I... Uh, true crime podcast to be named later. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting because, you know, uh, on our show, a court show, it is amazing to me the number of people who are there who would not be there if they had just said, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Or thank you, I'm sorry, Uh, I can't do this right now. I'll try to do it later. Um, I really goofed up. I will try to do better. Like, those little things can save people like thousands and thousands of hours and dollars, frankly. Forgiveness is, or just asking for it is, and owning, is so powerful. And owning, owning your behavior. I mean, this is also something later in life I was, I figured out, I, I can say, oops, my bad, that's on me. And everybody's off the hook. If if you very quickly just assume responsibility, like people make mistakes, you know. People you, make mistakes. Yeah. If you very quickly own your mistakes, everybody is off the hook. Instead of trying to cover it up. And, you know, don't you also, like, get annoyed with those silly non-apology apologies? I'm really sorry if something I did made you feel the way you do. I'm sorry you feel the way you do. Right. It's like, you're not sorry. Yeah. You should be sorry for what you did. Yeah. Uh, you did boundaries is one of your commandments, keeping appropriate boundaries. Often, Amy, the people who most get under our skin are people with whom we've got to be in regular contact. They may be family members. They may be professional colleagues. But how do you maintain a boundary with somebody who is constantly transgressing them and who you have to see? Like, you can't close your door on every colleague. You can't erase family members um, necessarily. How do, you, how do you maintain boundaries when people almost, you know, of necessity have to be in your space in some way? This is <clears throat> sort of leads into another of these little, you know, life hacks about being reactive. I am a big mouth. I'm a smarty pants. And I, I think, honestly, I got... I got where I am by being assertive, smarty, pants, sarcastic, all of it. I had to train myself not to react because I think when people step over boundaries and you don't react, it gives them sort of less, it gives them less fuel. I, one of my brothers-in-law, of course, I have, you know, eight brothers-in-law one of them said to me once, wow, Amy, you're really good at boundaries. And I was so flattered. He had a family member who approached me at a family gathering. And this is a super nice person, but overstepping, tried to engage me in what I would describe as uh, family gossip. 
And this brother-in-law apparently witnessed this. Um, I said, I'm, I'm not going to discuss that with you. And that was it. That was it. It was over. And he like, wow, he really took that in. And he was like, oh, I have to try that. Like you have, um, you know, we all have choices that we're making. When a boundary crosser like tries to interact with you, I mean, I think it's important to be patient, but also you have to like assert your own right to your space. What's your advice for dealing with bullies? Because so as I think about that, there are people who will push and push and push. You know, it's so important not to be reactive. Uh, I, you know, like you, I think I'm probably where I am today because of my smart mouth. <laughs> when I was young, that's what my mom used, my parents used to say, you got such a smart mouth. Um, they, it wasn't as a compliment. It wasn't yeah, like smart as same intelligent. Same here, same here. <laughs> it was like, stop talking back. And sometimes, you know, when there is that tendency uh, to you know, what to let people know that they can't get away with something, that they can't push you too far. And I think that maybe goes back to what you were saying about boundaries. It's hard sometimes to balance those two things. You don't want to be reactive, but you have to set a boundary. And sometimes, you know, you have to let a bully know that you're not the one. How do you tell people to, to deal with bullies? Honestly, I think that's probably the hardest category of question I get because I uh, bullies are frightening. And I it's very easy for me to tell somebody else, just stand up to a bully. Sometimes you should run. You know what I mean? You should avoid, you should run. I think each of us has hopefully the tools within to know who we are, okay? And even if you're running, avoiding, if you know who you are and you know that running and avoiding is the smartest thing to do, then you can feel good about that. And I, I really mean that. I love the work of Buddhist uh, writer Pema Chodron. And she wrote a book that really influenced me a lot. It's called, it's a series of lectures called Don't Bite the Hook. And she describes the hook as that thing that people dangle in front of you, whether it's a trigger, an anger trigger, a, a, a bullying comment, uh, a compliment, you know, the things they dangle in front of you that you um, can choose to bite it or not bite it. And I think that's sort of where I go in terms of not being too reactive. I went through a divorce a million years ago and I learned this, I had no power in this relationship. I had no power in this divorce. It was not my idea. It was very sudden. Of course, I was a kid that had been abandoned. And then here we are. And I remember the only time I felt powerful was when my former husband, you know, before he divorced me, presented me with a, something involving our daughter, who was a baby at the time. And I, I had decided I'm not going to react to him. I'm going to take my time. Like, time is all I have that belongs to me. So he made a statement or a demand or request or whatever. And he wasn't that much of a jerk, but um, I was going through a really tough time with this. And I just said, you know, let me get back to you. 
on that. And he, it was so unexpected. I was polite. I was like, let me just, I don't know, take, uh, let me just get back to you. And it made him really mad. (laughs) He was like, and I realized I, that was the only control I had was to take my time to be cordial, to behave, to stop crying in his face and to start behaving like the person I wanted to be, honestly. And sometimes it was a pretense. I mean, my goal has always been like, I I just want to behave well, you know, and I screw up plenty. My life is super messy, but I, I, I like to think that I've, I've gone around and I've tried mightily to clean up my messes and to behave like the kind of person I wanted to be when I was a kid. Wow. What you said about engaging with a bully and knowing when you need to leave, to turn away, to run is also really powerful because sometimes like we're inclined to think that standing up for ourselves or standing up to someone, you know, or, you know, to use my mom saying, uh, like looking crazy in the eye, it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to confront it or them or that thing. You know, sometimes the best thing you can do to stand up for yourself is to retreat, to leave a situation. You know, you don't have to fight every fight and, um, confront every antagonist. Sometimes you'll just waste a lot of time and lose a lot of sleep. And you know, I think it's really important for people to lock into their own judgment and understand that there are times when um, you're gonna walk, you're gonna walk, get in your car, get your, you know, I, this is sort of a code in my column where I'll, I'll say, look, get your coat. You know, <laughs> I have been at family gatherings or other, you know, gatherings where uh, it takes a turn and I'm like, oop, where's my coat? And I go, I leave. I leave. You recommend that people understand that life is basically hard. What do you mean by that? This came from a book. It's the first line of a book. I think it's The Road Less Traveled. Came out in the 80s, when I was going through this divorce, the first line is life is hard. And I remember going like, oh my God, it is. You know, I I just was this lucky dude, you know? I like was just striving. I got what I went after. I was very accomplished. And this was the first time that I had been knocked back as an adult. And it really helped me to sort of lock into that realization. And let me tell you, Tanya, as an older person, I have been a caretaker, caretaking for people who have died. I have loved people who have died. You know, as privileged and fortunate as my life is and has been, you get to a certain point and it's loss, loss, loss. And I think it really helps when you're younger to understand that life is hard. You were not put here. (laughs) No one guarantees, there's no guarantee that you'll be happy. It's really within your own, I mean, hopefully within your own control, 
to, um, I think recently I described it as like, you know, these small moments of joy. When you're my age, people start getting sick. All of my siblings have very serious illnesses. You don't have to look around very far to realize that this is finite and to gather your rosebuds, you know, smell the flowers, enjoy the beauty um, that we have access to while it's here. And I think it's temperamental. Look, I think I'm lucky that I have a temperament where I wake up and I'll go like, ah, oh, sunshine, I'll take it. You know, um, my mom used to say this to me when I was a kid. She was like, you are so easy. You know, I was very, I, I, w I think I was easily made happy. Honestly, I think that's why my um, disappointments have been so crushing. <laughs> because I'm like, ah, I'm so easy. How dare you? You know, <laughs> we're not really guaranteed anything. You know, we're not guaranteed the next day, the next month. Thank you for reminding me and all of us to appreciate what we've got when we've got it, to, to, to be more present. Do you think you're an optimist? Are you optimistic? I, I think I am. I've written two memoirs and, you know, I've, I've squeezed somehow two memoirs out of a life that's pretty uneventful. But that means that I, you know, I spend a lot of time looking back. I'm a navel gazer very, very much. But my closest friend and my husband are both people who, I mean, I say this with my husband, that dude has never had a bad day. It's so great to be around somebody like that. If you're like me, I tend to, I don't know if I am an optimist. I, I'm, I'm very pensive, believe it or not. As Gabby as I am, I'm, I'm, I live in my head a lot. So I, it's interesting to me that I've chosen to be closest to people who are very forward thinking, always looking forward. And it's um, honestly, I think it speaks well of me to try to balance that by being around people who are very, very much all about what's next. Matt, you and your husband together, and you guys are really like, you seem very much like teenagers. How long have you been married? We've been married for 15 years. Bruno and I knew one another in childhood. He also grew up on a farm nearby. And I moved back to this tiny little town when my mom got ill. I left my big apartment in Chicago, moved back home. And Bruno uh, is a builder. I hadn't seen him in years. I called him to uh, take a look at my mother's house to do some modifications because she was disabled. And honey, mm, 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 mm. oh boy. <laughs> okay, I, I'm a movie buff. Okay, he opens the door, it's fall. He opens the door. I don't know if you know movies, but the movie, The Quiet Man, John Wayne like opens the door to Maureen O'Hara's cottage and he's like silhouetted in the doorway. So this is the scene. And the leaves are like swirling around in back of him. And I was like, oh no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and I had not, I, ha I was single for 17 years. I had not had any serious relationships. It was 
and it was very, very amazing and really instant. And <laughs> we have five kids. And um, I had one daughter, he four, he had custody of his children. And I entered this household that was bananas with a four adolescent and teenage daughters. One of our daughters got pregnant in high school. And so I entered this household. I didn't even know these girls' middle names, I realized. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I moved in, we got married, I moved in. It was so challenging. She was like a teenager. And so this was my first encounter with this family. And I remember it's like, I remember when that daughter like went to the prom eight months pregnant and the other daughter like studying for SATs at the kitchen table and then an 11 year old who's playing soccer and a, a dog with a broken leg. I mean, it was cuckoo, cuckoo. But this is when you know you're with the right person. We just held hands. I mean, I often in my column, I'll say like, don't forget to hold hands because I really believe that good partners hold hands. I think the team concept is, is super cliche, but it's so true that parents need to act as a team, hold hands and go through life together. You will not always get along. <laughs> Bruno and I, he has a red pickup truck and we used to, just to get away from the kids, we would like, and of course where we live, it snows nine months out of the year. I mean, it just stopped snowing, you know. We would go get into the pickup truck after dinner and just drive around and like park, talk, make out, whatever, <laughs> just to get, just to get away from, uh, you know, all of our, our, our children. It was crazy. What's your advice to people for blending families? That's a big blend. It was a big blend. How do you advise people to try to make it work okay. as effectively as it can? This is where my work as an advice columnist completely controlled the way I approached step parenthood because I read a ton of books about it over the years for my advice column. And I felt like I really knew what to do and I was more or less right. I remember when I, I first entered the household, and of course I knew, you know, we know one another and I knew the children, but I, I did not live with them until we got married. Week one, the youngest daughter, who is 11, she was like shy. She, I walked in, we were all in the kitchen, and Bruno said, oh, Avila, like, oh, hug Amy. And he did this whole like squishing us together thing. And I was like, back away, stop it. And I said to him privately, you are not to do that. I was a girl once. <laughs> you need to let us get to know one another my intention is to be their friend. And I had read a book about befriending. First of all, I've always been really good with kids. I was a camp counselor. I do have some tricks up my sleeve. But I also 
approached these relationships as friendships. These daughters of ours, they're all very different. I did not want them together. I didn't treat them all the same. And I approached each as a friendship that I was trying to nurture. And sometimes, you know, Bruno was a single dad for several years. And so for him, just to have another driver, I started driving them around, you know? And when you drive girls around, you get some, you get some intel, you know? <laughs> so I, I never, ever, and he, he, he didn't get, I mean, I totally got what I was there to do. I never disciplined them ever. That was his job. Once in a while, I would say to him privately, I think you need to have a word with this about that. And he would. And at one point, one of the da our daughters said like, oh, that came from Amy. And he, <laughs> he repeated that to me. And I was like, you bet your ass. Like, I love the fact that she got it. And that she, I mean, that was the first time, we had been married maybe for five years at that point. And I thought, oh, she gets it. That like, we speak as a team, but this, he's saying the words, but he and I discuss everything, you know? And she, she'd had a very, a very familiar kind of young adult mess up that involved, if I recall, some police officers and he and I had a chat about what to do. And it involved this classic parenting, like how much bailing out are we gonna do uh, for this girl who needs to learn a couple things? And um, he and I had a chat. He then spoke to her about it. And she was like, oh, that came from Amy. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, yep, that's right. But we're in agreement. So yeah. That's what it's been like, just steps, slow steps, friendships, and we're really, really close now. Do you think communication is the most important thing in a relationship? As I hear you tell these stories about, well, communication and also making out in the car from time to time. <laughs> but as I hear you uh, tell these stories about Bruno and how the two of you move in the world together, that seems to figure very prominently. Is, is that the secret to success? I would say it's the secret to our success. I just got lucky because I married someone who, as I say, grew up in this massive family. And I think maybe because it was so crowded, he really had to develop his own voice. My family was more cerebral more brainy, smart alecky. This is something I've learned very late. In fact, I, I have friends who have been in very long marriages where they don't communicate. They just are like getting through parallel tracks. And I'm not judging uh, that at all, but I can say that like, I'm really happy. I'm really happy. Amy Dickinson, ask Amy. I could keep asking Amy all day, but I feel like I've got to release you at some point. This has been wonderful. I really hope that you will come back. I've uh, greatly enjoyed this conversation. Me too, Tony. I'd love that. 